This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. In 1960, 5% of all births were to unmarried mothers. Unmarried mothers, 5% of them. In 2019, it's nearly half. And it's especially likely that a child will be born out of wedlock if a mother does not have college education. 88% of children born to a college-educated white mom have a married mother, and that's true for 69% of those who have a high school degree, but only 60% of those who lack a high school diploma. Now, there's one, the black kids are especially likely to have an unmarried mother, especially if they're less educated. On the other side, there's Asian families. They are sort of the exception to this pattern. So these are just amazing facts, and they've been brought together with many, many more details and interpretations in a marvelous new book uh, by Melissa Carney, who's a professor of economics at the University of Maryland. And the book is entitled The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. I'm just very pleased to have Melissa Carney with me on the Education Exchange today. Thank you for joining me, Melissa. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, these are amazing facts. Um, and then you also say in your book, well, I presented these facts at an academic conference with lots of sophisticated people in the room. And I noticed a muted reaction, uncomfortable shifting in seats and facial expressions conveying reservations. They seem to say, listen, you're not saying things that should be said. So here's my question. Why do intelligent, informed, thoughtful people want to deny a reality staring them in the face? I think this is a really unfortunate um, reality that social scientists have been sort of mired in this, you know, inability to discuss honestly this issue of family structure. Um, and it has led to a reluctance, I think, you know, among many of us to bring this issue public. You know, these facts are well known among scholars who study poverty in America and equality in America, what's going on with the family, but it's not brought into public conversation or policy debates because there have been many moments in sort of the past you know, in, in social science, in policy conversations, where this has just fallen to culture war, you know, into culture war um, arguments. And that makes academics and scholars really reluctant to jump in on the conversation. It's interesting to me that you started, you know, your remarks by talking about how, you know, what these rates look like in 1960. Those of us who have been studying this issue for many decades will be well familiar with the Moynihan Report in the late 1960s. Oh, you! I was just about to ask you about the Moynihan Report and say, listen, you're not telling us anything that Moynihan didn't tell us back. Back right, so exactly. So Moynihan called attention to this issue back in the late 1960s when, you know, the the rate among. Um, Black Americans of single mother households or unmarried births was close to 30%. It was 5% among whites. And he said, hey, there's this disparity here. This is something we should pay attention to. Um, and then what happened over, 
you know, the next 10 years was that, you know, it, it got characterized uh, as sort of blaming the victim. And that, you know, sort of led to this really unfortunate, I think, issue among social scientists where this became a bit of a verboten topic. And then it, you know, resurfaced and folks like William Julius Wilson brought this back to, you know, to our attention in the 80s. Um, and then at the same time, there was welfare reform, which was really aimed at reducing the rise in non-marital childbearing in the U.S., given the widespread recognition that single mother households had very high rates of poverty. Um, but that also got sort of mired in, you know, this terrible sort of characterization of the welfare queen and some really harmful stereotypes. And so the issue yet again became something we couldn't really talk about. And so, you know, you're right. I'm not bringing up something that scholars haven't been aware of. I hope I'm bringing it up in a way this is, you know, optimistic of me, but not naive. I realize what I'm up against. I hope I'm bringing the topic up in a way that allows us to get out of the culture wars on this, uh, gives us a way to talk about the issue that's very honest about what's happening at a macro level, very honest about the consequences this has at a micro level for children and affected families, can acknowledge the racial and class gaps without either retreating into harmful stereotypes or stigmatization or counterproductive you know, characterization of people like me who are talking about it and saying we're being judgmental and wagging our fingers. When I think, you know, those of us who are willing to acknowledge these facts are the ones who are trying to have a productive conversation, I hope. Well, you know, one of the things that I learned, and I have been studying this for some time as well in my own little way, but what I learned from your book was that the United States is a little special in this regard, that we have 23% of our children living with one parent only and no other adult. But in the rest of the world, the percentage is just 7%. So, I mean, that's a big difference, 23% to 7%, the rest of the world. And so, I mean, there's a lot of poor countries out there. Uh, and, you know, the United States is one of the richest countries in the world. So why is it that this is so different in the United States than it is in most other places. Yeah, yeah. U.S. kids have the unique distinction of being the most likely in the world to live with only one parent. It's really important to recognize that this is not because Americans are so rich that it's easier for us to raise our kids with only one parent in the house. That might very well be true, but it's not the most economically successful adults in the U.S. who are doing this, who are, um, you know, raising their kids in, in one parent homes in large numbers. In the U.S., the high share of kids being raised by one parent is, as you mentioned at the beginning, um, really predominant among the non-college educated class. So I actually, you know, we I think it's more appropriate to think about U.S. exceptionalism in this regard as related to our high levels of inequality, our high levels of economic insecurity and, you know, sort of malaise among certain segments of the population. Well, let's uh, let's examine that because back in 1960, we were pretty much like any other country in the world. I mean, we didn't we didn't stand out. We didn't look that different. It's a recent phenomenon, and um, you know the question is why did it happen? And so I'm not at all sure that the increasing inequality 
in the United States, there's been increasing inequality around the world. I'm not sure that that's just the driving force that makes the United States so special. Um, there's some other factors that might be might be at work here. Uh, could it be the rising um, uh, unemployment among men that we have? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I so I my read of the evidence on what a, what has driven this in the U.S. is really the sort of you know conflict like the the compounding factors of changing social norms and the economic erosion of the position of non-college educated men in this country. Um, so you're right. When I, you know, mention or think about rising inequality, what I'm thinking about is the fact that college educated adults, men in particular, have continued to do quite well in the U.S. over the past 40 years, and they've continued to get married and have their, you know, raise their kids in two-parent households at basically the same rates as they were in the 80s. Um, below the college educated class. And we're not even just talking about the least advantage. We're not just talking about those, you know, without a high school degree. The real change has been sort of in the middle of the education distribution. People with, a, you know, adults with a high school degree or some college, they've really moved away from marriage, moved away from two-parent households at the same time as we've seen economic shocks disadvantage those men. That reduces the value proposition of marriage, right? For those couples, if the if the male is, you know, less likely to be a reliable um, economic contributor to the household at the same time as women are more likely to be able to, you know, have, be steadily employed, even out earn her male partner, that erodes the marriage prop the value proposition of marriage. And we've already, you know, if you think about the changes in the 60s and 70s and the cultural and social revolutions, we went into the 80s where there was already changing social norms about gender roles, the importance of marriage. So at the same time as it has become more socially acceptable and common to basically have kids outside of marriage, you had this changing economic proposition of the institution. And so I think the combination of those factors have led to the debundling of marriage and, and the marital union and having and raising kids outside the college educated class. So, you know, some people would say, okay, it's because women have become independent. They're now working. They're now earning their own income. They actually would just as soon raise the kids themselves as to have some male around who's going to be difficult to deal with. So uh, how much of that is part of the story, do you think? So I, you know, I will, I would never say that the, I, I think that that is part of the story. I would never conclude from that, that, you know, this in economic independence of women, that's what created this whole mess, right? So the fact that women are no longer financially dependent on a man, however, you know, undesirable he would be as a partner uh, for economic security. The fact that women are no longer sort of stuck in this horrible situation where they have to be married in order to financially thrive, that of course contributes to the reduction in marriage rates. But I think then what we take away from that is we need to really shore up the, you know, economic 
um, prospects for, again, it's really non-college educated men that we're seeing these challenges. We really you know, need to focus on why is it that so many of these men are either viewed as not being desirable marriage partners or resident dads or view themselves um, as being ready or willing or able to commit to being, you know, responsible for a family. I, I I don't I don't know I don't know how much of this is coming from the women rejecting the men versus the men deciding that they can't commit to this, right? But in our equilibrium, in our social equilibrium, yeah. we see a reduction you know, of marriage. Some of these things are happening in Europe as much as they are in the United States, or almost as much perhaps. And uh yet we don't see quite the same thing in Europe. I mean we may see uh, people not getting married, but they're still living together. They're, you know, this idea, you know, this idea that you have to actually, you know, go through the ceremony may not be such a widespread practice in the European context as it is in the United States. But, but there, but you know, um, men and women are raising children together over there much more than, it, despite the fact that these other trends are present. This is such an interesting and important point because often the reaction I'll get from, you know, academics or the you know professionals in the U.S. is, oh, so what? People in the U.S. are moving away from marriage. They do this in they do this in Europe, but to your point, they don't do it in the same way. They might not get married, but when they have kids, they stay together in long-term committed relationships. So those relationships, like the institution of cohabitation, especially cohabitation among parents, looks very different in Europe than it does in the U.S. Now, interestingly, I've been talking and you know reading a lot, talking with more scholars who study sort of Europe, you know these these family structure issues in the European context, and been reading more in the past couple of years for obvious reasons. Um, I've gotten really interesting reactions from economists and demographers in Europe, which is, I can't believe you're saying this. We would never say this in Europe. This is like, this has become sort of a, you know, a, a like a feminist sort of rallying cry of, you know, we would never bemoan the rise in single parent households. And my reaction to them is keep an eye on what's happening to the kids, because this is not inconsequential if you know the as europe starts veering more towards the us which we're seeing their rates of non-marital childbearing is growing their share of not of one parent households that is growing and again predominantly or disproportionately among the less educated groups right europe should take the U.S. lesson as as a cautionary tale, and not be agnostic and think of this as you know an achievement of progressive ideals. Yes. Okay. So now Hillary Clinton wrote a book saying it takes a village uh, to raise a child, and I think there's much to what she said. I I, I found the book really a uh, very satisfying read, but um, but so you know. Can't the kids just be raised by the grandparents? You know, my wife and I are now grandparents. Congratulations. Uh, we're very involved in our grandchildren's lives. Uh, fortunately, they both have a very happily married parents. Um, but um, people are living longer and are healthier than they've ever been before. And there's lots of aunts, cousins, neighbors, everybody around to fill the gap. You really need two parents. I completely agree. 
that having three kids, that it takes a village to raise kids, right? And so, you know, I too rely very heavily uh, on my parents and, you know, my in-laws. I mean, we have at my, my, you know, my kids have the, have aunts and uncles too. There's a lot of people around that they get support and love from in addition to having two parents in the household. What we don't see in the data is that single mothers are in general making up for the absence of a second parent in the household with somebody else. So 67% of kids who live with only their mom their mom doesn't have a spouse or an unmarried partner, 67% of them don't have any other adult in the house. So it's not like these houses are, oh, okay, they don't have a second parent, but the majority of them have, let's say, a grandma or an aunt. That's that's simply not true. Um, I also haven't seen any data suggesting that single moms are necessarily more likely to have you know, support or their kids are more likely to be in frequent contact with extended family than let's say kids from two parent households. So while I completely grant the point that extended family and other village members are really helpful, it's not the case that they seem to be, you know, especially helpful to kids who don't have two parents in the household, nor is it really realistic to think that they would ever make up for a second parent in the household just one also point on this, there are increasingly uh, responsibilities placed on grandparents for taking care of kids in this country, given the rise in single parent households and and even a rise in the number of kids who are living with no parent. They're living with grandparents. Um, and, you know, while, of course, I like to think that my parents, you know, love all the time when they get with my kids, it's a burden on grandparents. And I don't think we should lose sight of that. Right. So as I've put out this book, too, I've been getting this is just anecdotal, but I've been getting emails from some grandparents who are like, you know, I'm I'm older. I thought I'd be retired. I'm taking care of my grandkids. And by the way, I don't get a lot of sort of federal support as a grandparent. So so it's actually an interesting and complicated issue. Yes. No. Um, so what's the consequences for the kids? Uh, um, how? what's the data tell us about it? If you only have one parent, if you're growing up with one parent instead of two, does it really make that much difference to a child? Maybe you have a little less money, but it doesn't really make much difference for your life opportunity. The evidence on this is just overwhelming. And, you know, the, the sort of modal social scientist who doesn't want to be out there suggesting that marriage is important for kids will point to the fact that the more you control for in the regression, the smaller the gap in kids' outcomes becomes, right? Because just in the cross-section, they're quite large. Kids who grew up with one parent versus two parent households, huge gaps. So, okay, then at least let's con- you know compare across moms with the same education level age live in the same place. We still see huge gaps. So then let's control for income. Now, it's very easy for us to control for income in our regressions. But of course, in the real world, you don't equalize income between one and yeah, two. That's households. very much the definition of not having two uh, incomes. <laughs> exactly. Coming in. You'll have less money. <laughs> exactly. So that so income is a very important mechanism, right? We just, you know, basically... Again, because most moms work these days, two-parent households tend to have about twice as much income as one-parent households, and that allows parents to live in better neighborhoods, have less stress in the household, spend more money on kids, education, enrichment activities, lots of things. But when you control for income, 
you do shrink the gap. We could talk about exactly how much. Let's just say by like about a half. There's still a lot of things that second parent does for children and for the household beyond just bringing in money. So we also know that a second, you know, married parent households, kids in married parent households get more parental time, which again, it's not surprising. It's sort of obvious, isn't it? It's sort of obvious, right? <laughs> it's twice it, as it, much time around if there's two parents instead of one. That's exactly right. They also tend to get um, more nurturing parenting, which also isn't surprising because being a parent can be very stressful. And well, by the time dad gets completely stressed out, mom can take over and vice versa. I th That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Like how many times I say, you know, I, I'm I'm out of patience, you, you take over, right? If there's no one else in the house, you don't have that buffer. And you also have more stress because you're the only one paying all the bills and doing everything on a daily level to keep the household level. So again, it's not surprising and it doesn't have to be judgmental and it doesn't say suggest that, oh, the kinds of people who are married would obviously be more patient and nurturing parents than the kind of people who dis who, who aren't. You know, we we don't, we're always like so worried about suggesting that something might be causal, that might be correlational, but I don't think it's that hard of a jump of logic to think, hey, if you're doing this all by yourself, it's not that surprising that you don't have the same emotional bandwidth or energy to be patient and nurturing and read to your kid all the time. Well, we're never going to be able to randomly assign people to exactly. two parent or one parent family. So we will never be able to have a randomized experiment. So we will never know. So therefore we cannot say, is that what people are telling us? It, uh, that is, it sounds like a character, but yes. <laughs> I mean, that <laughs> is actually a very, very common response. And so at some point, I think we have to say, do we really just want to ignore all the preponderance of evidence and common sense and say, it must not be the fact of having a second parent and all the things that they do in the house. It must be something observational, uh, un, like unobserved to the researcher, such that these single parents would not be able to generate better outcomes for these kids, even if there was a second parent in the house. Yeah, so there's no such thing as climate change because we have only one earth and we don't have a control group. There's no counterfactual. So I... Yeah, it's, you know, I'm never going to be able to present an RCT to the real skeptic, but I am convinced by the preponderance of evidence. Actually, one of the things you say that is really quite fascinating and something I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about is that the absent father is much more important for boys than for girls. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, there's been a couple studies in recent years documenting that the gender gap in outcomes for kids, the gender gap now favoring girls in the sense that they're less likely to get in trouble in school, they're more likely to achieve higher levels of education. The gender gap is greater among children from single parent homes than two parent homes. Uh, and a really fascinating paper by Marianne Bertrand and Jessica Pond digs into this and looks at mechanisms. So they observe that boys in single mother homes do get less parental inputs in the ways we were just talking about, less time, uh, less nurturing. They're more likely to sort of be subject to, you know, what is called like harsher parenting. There are differences. So, you know, you can think about those as differences in the X's, basically, the inputs or the, you know, the parental inputs. But what's really interesting in their study is they find it's actually that boys 
seem particularly responsive to parental inputs. And so, you know, another way to say that is if a boy gets less time with their parent or they get less nurturing parenting at home, they are more likely to go to school and get in trouble or, you know, have struggle in school than girls. And so the absence of the dad in the home for kid, for boys leads to a worsening of boys' outcomes in a way that affects their educational performance um, and their future trajectories. I want to be careful because, you know, I'm not comfortable saying that girls aren't affected or suffering, but we know from, you know, psychology literature that girls often internalize their struggles and boys externalize it. And But when boys externalize it and they go to school and they act out, they get suspended and these things cascade and then they're more likely to get in trouble with the law and more like, right. So, so they're affected in ways that- Right. Well, we know that incarceration rates for men are, you know, five times as large as for women. So that right. sort of fits in with what you've just been saying there. Yeah. yeah. So now- you talk about this popular TV show and you admit that, okay, this is not, you know, hard, really hard data, but you say that uh, teenage pregnancy dropped very quickly among young people when this, uh, well, tell us this story. Okay. So teen, so teen childbearing is way down in the U S and by the way, I know this isn't the point of your specific question, but let's stop on this for a minute because if we knew back in 1980, how, much of a decline we would get in teen childbearing over the next 40 years, all of us would have predicted a decline in single parent households. So it's actually sort of stunning that teen childbearing is way down and single parent households have actually- Yeah, used, the problem used to be defined is uh, teenage births. That used to be the problem. Yeah. It's no yeah. longer the problem. No, no, exactly. Teen, like teenage births are way down, but now- sort of non-marital childbearing has spread to older moms and, and more educated moms. Okay, so teen childbearing has been falling. It's been falling by a lot. One year it fell by 7.5% instead of 2.5%, which it has been his rate of the rate of reduction. Phil Levine and I, who studied child, teen childbearing, were like, we're not sure what is going on, but I whatever people are going to say this is, we know it's not the unemployment rate. We know it's not a spread of abstinence education. We know those things just don't have such large an effect. Um, it turned out something did happen in the previous year, which is that MTV introduced this show, 16 and Pregnant, <laughs> which is a, show, a reality show that basically showed it was hard to be a teen mom. That was like basically what this show just gave a very real depiction of it. MTV did not intend for this to be some sort of educational informational campaign. They actually just thought that maybe this would be entertaining. Turned out it was a hit show. Uh, it had tremendous ratings among teenagers. A lot of them watched it. In places where more teenagers were watching the show, and we sort of take some variation in that coming from in places where before this show came on the air, more teenagers were watching MTV. Okay. So they weren't turning in specifically to watch this show. They just happened more, you know, MTV was more popular in certain places among teenagers for whatever reason. When this show came on the air, we subsequently saw that those places where MTV had more market penetration, teenage births fell by more. And so the idea is, was it possible that teenagers saw this show and took it as a cautionary tale? Certainly focus group interviews with teenagers suggested as much. We got access to Google and Twitter data, and we saw that you know when these episodes aired, there would be a spike in Google searching for 
how to get birth control. There would be a spike in tweets mentioning 16 and pregnant and birth control, which is just sort of supportive of the idea that the show actually influenced people's attitudes. Um, I don't want to overstate, you know, and say this MTV show is the reason why teen childbearing is down so much, but it did have an incremental and a substantial effect in the years after its introduction. And I, and I think this speaks to the power of media images and messaging and affecting people's decisions and behaviors, even in the sphere as complicated as, you know, relationships and fertility. So what this suggests to me is that we got to look at the elites in our society, the people who control the entertainment and communication industries, as well as the political figures. And they really haven't, you know, lived up to their responsibility. I think President Obama tried to do this, but um, really he was not supported by the larger sophisticated culture of the society. And sophisticated people know the two parent families are important. That's what your data tells us. If, if you're a college educated person, you stick with your partner, even though life isn't necessarily perfect. But uh, the, that's not the communication that goes out there from the mechanisms that are controlled by the sophisticated people in the society. So can't we just blame the people in charge, so to speak, rather than always blaming the victim? Rob Henderson, uh, he has a really fascinating book coming out, his own memoir about growing up in foster care. He refers to this phenomenon that you're talking about as luxury beliefs, which is the the elite, you know, is, they verbalize the idea that marriage doesn't matter or family structure doesn't matter, which is a luxury for them to say, because the largest consequences of the decline in marriage, the rise of one parent households, are very much outside their class, right? So I think he would certainly agree with you. Um, I start one of my chapters with uh, some lines from President Obama's 2008 Father, uh, Father's Day speech or address. And it's really amazing just how forthcoming he is about the problem of dads not being in, in households. Um, when you reread sort of some of the things that President Clinton said in 19, back in 1996 about the problem of non-marital childbearing, it's a bit stunning to me because it's hard for me to imagine a, a Democratic leader sort of taking on this message from the from their pulpit. And I do think messaging matters. I think we have a lot of evidence, like social science evidence that messages matter and they percolate. Um, and so, you know, to the extent we want to say, hey, elites need to be a bit more honest about the challenges of one parent households, both for the moms and for their kids, you know, I, I think that would be productive. So Melissa, this is an amazing book. I wish you well. I hope it sells millions of copies. <laughs> I am a little, a little nervous that you will encounter that same shrug of the shoulders and that embarrassed look when people take uh, a look at your title, let me ask you about the title though, because you talk about, you know, the two-parent privilege. And I'm not so sure that that, I, 
I'm not sure, sure about the title. Is what would you privilege? have? What would you have called it? Coming up with the title was hard. What would you have titled it? <laughs> I don't know, but somehow I don't think it's a. You know, most of the world, yeah, most people have two parents. It's not a privilege; it's a practice. The two parent is just, you know, that's just basically what people have done for you know <laughs> thousands of years. There's nothing particularly special or privileged about it. Yeah. The so the reason I refer to it as the two parent privilege is because in U.S. in the U.S. society today, it has become like a privilege of the of the most fortunate in society. Like we're the ones most likely to to have the privilege of a long-term marriage, of having a committed partner to raise our kids with. I don't think it should be a privilege, which is part of my point. This should be something that everyone feels like is accessible. Um, and so so that was part of it. You know, I'll be honest, I my when I submitted the manuscript, um, it was called the family gap because I was really focused on this wide gap, this wide gap now between the college educated and everyone else. And then the sort of publisher marketing team got back to me and was like, that is a terrible title. Nobody even knows what the family gap is. What about the one parent problem? And I said, absolutely not. I will not call this the one parent problem. This is why we can't have this conversation is because as soon as you start talking about it, it sounds like you're blaming single moms. I absolutely will not refer to single moms as the problem. They are their kid's biggest asset and they need more help, probably a second parent in the household. And so I wanted to flip the emphasis um, on why it is that having two parents is, is a beneficial structure and, and highlight the fact that it's become something disproportionately enjoyed um, by the most educated, the highest income in society. And I, and I don't think that's anything that we should be complacent about. Well, thank you for that explanation. And I will admit that that is a pretty clever title. So <laughs> it has a nice alliteration there for one thing. So thank you very much, Melissa, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks so much for having me. I have been speaking with Melissa Carney, professor of economics at the University of Maryland and author of a remarkable new book, The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange, which is released every Monday at noon Eastern time on the Education Next website.